Good morning. Is that a little, that's a little more direct, okay. If you could turn in your Bibles, if you have them, to Luke, Gospel of Luke chapter 22. And we're going to start in verse 63 and we're going to finish this chapter today. word of the Lord. Now the men who were holding Jesus in custody were mocking him as they beat him. They also blindfolded him and kept asking him, prophesy, who is it that struck you? And they said many other things against him, blaspheming him. When day came, the assembly of the elders of the people gathered together, both chief priests and scribes, And they led him away to their council, and they said, If you are the Christ, tell us. But he said to them, If I tell you, you will not believe, and if I ask you, you will not answer. But from now on, the Son of Man shall be seated at the right hand of the power of God. So they all said, Are you the Son of God then? And he said to them, You say that I am. Then they said, What further testimony do we need? We have heard it ourselves from his own lips. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for your word. We pray, Lord, that you would give us humble hearts to receive what you're saying. Lord, I pray that you would use my words, Lord, um, Lord, in spite of their weakness. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. I uh, titled today's message, as I guess you can see in the uh, bulletin, I I called it God in the Dock. And I stole the title from C.S. Lewis's book. I don't think he'll mind. Uh, Not that I ever read the book, mind you. I just know his name carries more weight than mine. And uh, you serious readers out there, I I knew you would be impressed. Um, I was on vacation a couple weeks back, and I brought the book with me. Uh, because I always think I'll read on vacation. Um, And I actually did this time, but I made the mistake of also bringing my Ian Fleming James Bond collection, and I really wanted to know how Diamonds Are Forever was going to end, and so I read that instead. Um, So my research is a bit thin on the C.S. Lewis book, and that's okay. Uh, uh, The title was the only important thing anyway. I just wanted to borrow that. Um, The Doc. Does anybody know what a doc is, what he's talking about there? Some of you are probably familiar with the phrase. Okay, Tim Schrapp knows. All right, so that's one. We're good. Um, The doc is a British courtroom term. Uh, God in the dock, as it turns out, has nothing to do with Jesus going sailing. Some of you are disappointed by that, I guess. But uh, uh, if you were picturing Jesus sitting by the sea and humming Otis Redding tunes, just get that idea out of your heads. Um, In English courtrooms, you traditionally put the accused or the suspect in a sort of cage in the middle of the room. They call that the dock. Uh, So everyone could see and scrutinize and sort of prejudge this guy. Um, And you've probably seen this in old movies and things, and they have a similar thing in in Harry Potter in the the Ministry of Magic. They put them in that little cage in the middle there. Uh, I believe they still have a dock down at Independence Hall. I haven't been there in a while, but... uh, you know, dating back to the colonial era, I think they still have that there. But when you're in the dock, it ain't a good place to be. You're standing there in handcuffs like a caged animal, and you're elevated a little bit, so everyone's staring at you. 
And the inevitable result is that you sure do look like you must be guilty of something, you know. It's an embarrassing place to be no matter how you look at it. And it would be absolutely ludicrous to find God in such a place. And that's what's jarring about Lewis's title. And it's also what's jarring about today's story. Uh, We've reached the point where Jesus is actually in custody. He's officially in the dock, as it were. He's gone from being celebrated into Jerusalem to being incarcerated. And he's being held up to scrutiny and stared at and judged. Never before has the humiliation of Jesus Christ been so stark. Uh, A few weeks ago, uh, Dave Miller was talking about humility and uh, that when we're bad at being humble, God has a habit of humiliating us, right? Uh, To be humble, you see, is an adjective. It describes your lowly state if somebody is humble. He's a humble fella. But to be humiliated is the verb. It's the act of getting humbled, being humiliated. And when we're humiliated, we're getting knocked down a peg, right? Um, Or more often, in my experience anyway, it usually means I suddenly become aware of how low I really was to begin with. Uh, You suddenly see that you were never as high as you thought you were. Uh, For us, or for me, being humiliated is often synonymous with being exposed, Uh, you suddenly realize what everyone else around you already knew, that you're not that good, right? Uh, When theologians, however, talk about the humiliation of Jesus Christ, that's quite a different matter. Our humiliations come when our facade gets shattered, but his was a true humiliation. He really did have to lay aside the glory of heaven to come to earth. Every step of his earthly life and his ministry Everything was a humbling experience for him. Being born was a humbling experience for him with the messiness that that entails. I can attest to it. I've been there for a few of ours, you know, but I can't even imagine being in a barn. Uh, Having to obey earthly parents with all their foibles, if you're God, I mean, really. Facing temptation in the wilderness. His entire earthly ministry with all the opposition he had to face and the slanders. But here is where things are starting to really get ugly because this is the first time anyone has actually physically laid a hand on our Lord like this, where the mocking words start to take on physical force. I want to read that section again. The men who were holding Jesus in custody were mocking him as they beat him. They also blindfolded him and kept asking him, prophesy, who is it that struck you? And said many other things against him, blaspheming him. I... I don't know, this is probably just my mistake. I've always pictured this as like a bunch of Roman troops smacking him around, right? Um, But, you know, when you read it a little more carefully, you realize that these are not Roman soldiers. These are still Jews. This is the temple guard. The Roman abuse comes later. Um, Judas was in no position to hire Roman troops to arrest Jesus, and the chief priest certainly couldn't do that. So they're part of a detachment of temple guards who came to arrest Jesus. They're not soldiers in the governmental sense. John uses the term that often gets translated as soldiers, but they're not in that sense. They're not even the local police, exactly. They're not like Herod's men. They're more like Levite security officers who take themselves too seriously. They're young Renacop priests flexing their muscles. And I say this advisedly because I've been a Renacop myself before. When I was at Penn State, I spent one semester working for the uh, police auxiliary, is what we called it. Uh, We had uniforms, uh, but we all knew we had no power. Um, We weren't even allowed to carry whistles on our whistle chains. Part of our uniform, and we could get written up for this, we had a little chain that came off of a button here and into our our pocket here, see? And it was our whistle chain, but there was no whistle on the end of it. (laughs) 
uh, we were actually forbidden to carry a whistle. They were locked up in storage uh, because they were afraid we might abuse the privilege. <laughs> so we had a radio, and that was it. Um, but if we ever had a chance to show some muscle, we'd probably have been all over that, a chance to prove that our uniform really meant something, you know. But we knew better, you know. Uh, we had one guy, one guy working with us who was really into the job, like too into the job, you know, like uh, talked a lot about the law and proper procedures and the kind of guy who uh, reported everything, including like little mistakes by his coworkers and, you know, that kind of thing. And guys like that end up giving the outfit a bad name because he's forgetting what we are, Rent-a-Cops for the police auxiliary, you know. Well, the Temple Guard, in today's passage, are giving the outfit a very bad name. Their normal job is guarding gates and certain rooms in the Temple complex. That's what they do. And tonight, they got to act like a SWAT team, leading a mob out into the, uh, you know, out into the garden. And it's going to their heads. And Jesus, for the first time, undergoes the disgrace of physical abuse, and not just physical abuse, because there's a certain dignity you can maintain by taking your hits like Rocky style and just keep getting up again, you know. But Jesus got the added insults, making fun of his prophet status. And ironically, these guards are mocking his claim to divinity, making light of what the council is about to condemn him for. They don't take Jesus seriously at all. They don't believe he's anything special. In that sense, the council's closer to the truth. They at least take Jesus seriously as a threat. Uh, the guard, not so much. They look at Jesus and see a joke. But his treatment is sadly only going to get worse. Uh, the guard is only holding Jesus until such time as the council is ready to see him. Luke tells us that this was an overnight holding and that the trial started in the morning, uh, early. Now, the council that's to try Jesus is called the Sanhedrin. They would only convene during the day. Uh, Jesus enters this day with probably not an ounce of sleep. Uh, how well did you guys do a couple weeks ago when it was daylight savings time? How did you guys handle that? I don't know. Uh, Georgia grumbled for two days about how it threw her off. Like, I don't know, you know. We lost an hour, folks. You know, it's going to be okay. But, uh... uh Imagine facing this particular Friday if you're Jesus. You've had no food since a very tense dinner last night with the disciples, okay? You spent the entire night before dreading this day while praying about it. And you know how waiting for something bad is often worse than the thing itself. Dreading tomorrow is an exhausting thing. Jesus has been abandoned by his friends, so he's lonely. And he enters the day with little to no sleep. Peter, James, and John got their naps while he was praying. Uh, but he didn't have that benefit. And now he's been smacked around by the guards, mocked and laughed at. It's okay, though. He's going to get his day in court. You know how uh, sometimes an American citizen you'll hear in the news gets arrested in Iran or some other dictatorship, and you know he's being savagely treated in the prisons, you know, over there, and then you hear that there's going to be a trial. Now, do you think... When you hear that, do you think, great, now the truth will come out. His innocence will be proven. No. What purpose do the trials serve in, like, these, you know, places like in Iran or North Korea? They're always held to justify, but the rulers have already decided. It's a foregone conclusion. It's like an election in North Korea. You can freely vote for Kim or for death for you and your family. Who do you think is going to win, right? Right? Now, this trial is not being held to settle facts 
And it's certainly not being held to let Jesus speak, really. The whole point of his night arrest was that he would have no audience. That's a large part of it. Not many people are even aware this morning that Jesus has been arrested in the night. Now, again, the council Jesus is going before is the Sanhedrin. It's a group of 70 chief priests, scribes, and elders of the people, plus the high priest, who was Caiaphas at the time. So you have 71 guys, and they meet every day but the Sabbath, and they acted as a sort of supreme court for Israel. And there's some precedent in the Old Testament for such a thing. Moses had uh, 70 elders to help him administer Israel in the wilderness. And I don't want to question the legitimacy of the Sanhedrin as an institution. They're not supposed to be a kangaroo court. And it's not supposed to be like a, you know, Saddam Hussein's Iraq-style justice system. It's not like that. And usually it probably wasn't. But in this case, the pressing need to get rid of Jesus trumped all norms and customs. Again, unlike the guards, the council recognizes that there's something big about Jesus. They don't like him. But more importantly, they know he's dangerous. So Jesus comes before the Sanhedrin. Let me read the first part of that again. When day came, the assembly of the elders of the people gathered together, both chief priests and scribes, and they led him away to their council, and they said, If you are the Christ, tell us. But he said to them, If I tell you, you will not believe, and if I ask you, you will not answer. But from now on, the Son of Man shall be seated at the right hand of the power of God. Their question is almost strange, isn't it? Uh, They ask him to reaffirm his status as the Messiah. If you are the Christ, just tell us. Almost like they're taking now this condescending paternal approach. Like, you can go ahead, just be honest, let us know. How many of you have seen the movie Anger Management with Jack Nicholson and, uh, what's his name, Uh, 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 Adam Sandler, that's who it is. Yeah, okay, I got a couple of hands up, okay. Uh, Jack Nicholson's running this anger management counseling group, you know, early on in the film, and, and Adam Sandler has to go to it, and keeps asking Adam Sandler, tell us who you are, you know. And, uh, you know, Adam Sandler starts by saying, well, you know, I work in this and that place and everything else. He said, no, no, Dave, that's your job. Tell us who you are. Well, uh, you know, I I enjoy tennis and I I no hobbies, Dave. Just, Just tell us who you are. And then he starts opening up and he starts talking about his character traits and his flaws. And he said, No, Dave, you're describing your personality. Just tell us who you are, you know. And and meanwhile, Adam Sandler's like boiling, and he's getting more and more furious, and you see him like shaking, like ready to hit somebody, you know. Um, That's like the Sanhedrin here. They're asking what sounds like a simple question, but really they're just kind of toying with Jesus and trying to put him off of his game. And Jesus refuses to play ball. He calls them on the carpet. He says, you're not going to believe me anyway, and you're not really interested in a conversation. But pretty soon, I'm going home. I'm going back to the Father. And now they think they have him. Because who can claim to sit at God's right hand but his anointed? So they ask if he's the Son of God. And he says to them, you say that I am. Then they said, what further testimony do we need? We've heard it ourselves from his own lips. He doesn't deny it. So they think the case case is airtight, right? Now, it's hard to say what the elders thought the Christ was supposed to look like. They do believe in one, in theory, the Pharisees did. Uh, Maybe it's easier to believe in an idea than the reality, who knows. But I suspect that they suspect that he might be the Son of God. They can't explain his miracles, and they can't explain his powerful speech, and they can't dismiss his prophetic spirit. 
And I don't think that they think he has just delusions of grandeur, because why would you go after a crackpot, right? No, he's dangerous because they're afraid he might be who he says he is. Might be. Now, the Sanhedrin knows they don't have the ability to kill Jesus. Back in the day, they would have, but they are still subject to Rome at this point. And Rome doesn't want local councils stoning people without their okay. Uh, so death penalty cases must get the nod from the provincial governor, who was Pilate. Uh, and they would rather have Rome do the dirty work in this case anyway. So the Sanhedrin knows they're going to have to alter the charges to get Pilate's attention. And that's why they're going to shift focus from Jesus' divinity claims to his kingship. And that will be talked about next week. Um, but I want you to see in today's passage that Jesus' path to the cross starts with his own people. Rome is not concerned with Jesus at this point. Pilate seems surprised and even annoyed when they bring the case to him. Even the Jewish secular government doesn't seem to be worried about Jesus. Herod hasn't sent officers after him. Herod's in town. He could have done that, but he didn't. Herod's actually interested in Jesus because he's heard he's a magic man. No, the trial of Jesus starts with the chief priests, the theologians, and the seminary students. His arrest was led by a Jewish mob. This is how God's people responded to his coming. Torches, pitchforks, clubs, physical abuse, blasphemy, followed by a third world dictatorship style court hearing. It's indeed true, as John says in chapter 1 of his book, that his own received him not. Now, going back to my title, God in the Dock, I want you to see the absurdity of the situation. God's people, the Jesus Christ on trial before them, their highest court is sitting in judgment over God himself. The one through whom the earth was made is under judgment of a religious court in an obscure region of the Roman province of Judea. And that is patently absurd. What little I did read of God in the dock <laughs> contained this little thought from C.S. Lewis that was a good nugget. He says, what are we to make of Jesus Christ? This is a question which has, in a sense, a frantically comic side. For the real question is not what are we to make of Christ, but what is he to make of us? The picture of a fly sitting deciding what it is going to make of an elephant has comic elements about it. For God to be in the dock, to be under judgment, is a comical picture theoretically, but in reality it is shameful and disgusting and utterly backward. What right does anyone have to judge God? Now, we see it all the time. The world has lots of opinions about God, doesn't it? It judges him for the evil done by man. It, it judges him for natural disasters. It judges him for the election last year. Uh, it essentially judges him for all the pain and suffering in the world since the fall. The world has little love for God. In one breath, it denies his existence, and then in the next sentence, it's very angry at him as if he is there. Um, in some ways, the world is represented well by Pilate and Herod and the temple guard, for that matter. They find him interesting when they think he'll do tricks, but they generally think he's ridiculous. The world judges God all the time. But it would be wise to consider how we in the church can stand in judgment over God, because that's the premise of today's story. Of course the world rejects Christ. We know that. But the rejection of God in the flesh started with the judgment of his people, the people who bear his name. 
And we better be willing to do some self-reflection on the point, because it's easy enough to look down on the Jews of this time for failing to receive the Christ. I mean, we can't believe they acted like that, right? But hindsight is always 20-20. Now, I have a confession. I was homeschooled. Some of you know that. And I guess that means I had a sheltered childhood, in theory. Uh, but one thing I was not shielded from was the wit and wisdom of one Jed Trot. When Jed doesn't know I was going to say any of this. Uh, when I was in seventh grade and, and Jed was in eighth, we were in the same co-op, and my mom taught us American history on Wednesday mornings. And when we were covering the American Revolution, she asked a hypothetical question we had to discuss. Would you have been a patriot or a loyalist? You know, would you have supported George Washington or the king? And every one of us proudly declared that we would have been patriots. We would have fought those rotten red coats from here to the coast. And, you know, how could she even ask such a silly question? We're all proud Americans, right? Everyone, that is, except for Jeb. <laughs> Jeb was the only one to say, among us, to declare 220 years after the fact that he would have opposed the war and the declaration. And uh, the rest of us were disgusted. I mean, he was basically saying he wanted us to be like Canada and have the queen on our coins. I mean, how shameful is that? But Jed went there. And that's honesty, folks. Either that or it's Jed being Jed, contrarian that he is. I don't really know. But I never forgot that exchange, and I've pondered it many times since because I think to myself, like, looking back, like, maybe I would have been a loyalist. It's not so unlikely, given that I hate pretty much all other revolutions, right? Um, the point is... We shouldn't be so quick to think that we would act a certain way in a totally different circumstance. We need humility when looking at history. And passages like this have historically been used to justify anti-Semitism, and that shows how wrongly we can read it, because it takes real arrogance to feel superior to the Jews of Jesus' day. C.S. Lewis coined the phrase chronological snobbery, and I want to avoid feeling morally superior just because I have hindsight, you know. So in that spirit, I'm asking the question, how do we in the church put God in the dock, so to speak? In what ways do we, as professing Christians, put God on trial? How do we judge God? Well, in some ways, I think we're no better than the world. I think we also try to force God to explain the world's suffering as if we had nothing to do with it. Mankind was perfectly fine until God came along. God, explain yourself. If you're good, why did X happen? I ask this in my head a lot. And I don't even ask it about the big things, but little things. I find it's easy to explain war and famine and bad elections and everything else. I figure, well, mankind's a mess, so it's no wonder there. But I get upset about other things, like when my tool breaks that I'm using, or I spill something. Or my three-year-old daughter wets herself because she didn't tell me she needed to go to the bathroom until the last second. And uh, my, immediate, my immediate response is often, why? Just loudly yelling that at them or something, you know. And, and I'm, talking, you know you, I'm talking in the direction of the drill or my coffee or my daughter, right? But underneath that, I'm actually kind of angry at God. I'm shaking a fist and demanding an explanation for why he let this happen. Because I know he's sovereign. And he knows I have a short temper, Right? So why did he let this thing go so wrong? Why couldn't it go smoothly for me, his humble servant? Jesus is my homeboy. This is... When we went to Florida 
a couple weeks ago, we went to visit family friends near Coral Springs, and we didn't book a hotel in advance because I'm clever like that. <laughs> and when at 11 o'clock at night we were driving around whatever county that is and making phone calls frantically and, you know, there was not a single room in the county available, I got really mad. Um, I blamed Georgia for not reminding me to book. I threatened to start heading home, to hop right on 95 and drive right on north. Uh, but underneath it all, I was kind of mad at God because I thought to myself, why is he embarrassing me? Why did he give me such a forgetful wife who didn't remind me to book? Why did he take us all the way to Florida only to abandon us here in this horrible place? And, you know, ultimately... He was merciful. We ended up calling our friends last minute, and we stayed with them and had a nice crowded time sleeping on their floor and everything. Um, and we actually had a really nice time with them. But th that was me judging God for letting me down, for not providing what I think I needed. And I've been guilty of feeling at times like God doesn't make himself more obvious to me. Why is the God who controls everything so unclear when I ask for guidance? Why am I such a lousy witness when he promised he would give us the words to speak? He talks about that, right? Why did he give us a scripture that doesn't explain absolutely everything? Why are there so many passages that are unclear or seemingly impossible to understand? Why does he judge certain sins so harshly? Why is he so paternalistic? Why is he such a bleeding heart when it comes to society's dirtbags? I don't like them. Why? 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 It's like I'm interrogating him. I'm putting him in the dock of my mind, and I'm demanding answers. And how many of you have stood in judgment of God in your own minds, demanding answers with a clenched fist? Maybe even with the implied threat that you might walk away if he can't answer to your satisfaction. I'll be so done with him. But sometimes self-proclaimed Christians, people who bear that name, go a step further we don't like something about God or his commands, so we conclude that there's no way Jesus would support this. The Bible must not be clear about it, or else the Bible's just wrong. Jesus wouldn't judge my actions like that. Jesus wouldn't be so mean. Jesus would never get angry like that. I had a, a, a teacher sophomore year at Central, and she, I guess she would have called herself a Christian, but she was sort of a New Ageist, sort of spiritualist, whatever, uh, we were discussing the Bible once in class, and she said that Jesus was never angry. And I, you know, uh, brought up the <laughs> cleansing of the temple with the whip. And her answer was that those are all vicious lies, she said, like that. Um, she had invented in her mind a new happy Jesus um, that suited her taste. Uh, a friend of mine with some church background not long ago insisted that someone was in heaven because she had gone through tremendous suffering and torture before dying. So he concluded that God would be so unfair if he didn't let her directly in. There's no doubt she has to be in heaven. Now, that's not remotely biblical. I don't know where she is, but suffering doesn't qualify anybody for heaven unless we're talking about the sufferings of our Lord. But my friend said this with almost a hint of anger. He better let her in or else. He had invented a Jesus to fit his standard of fairness. There's a popular theologian who took a lot of blowback from much of the rest of the church for likening our 
the atonement of the cross as we understand it, to cosmic child abuse. And in a sense, this was him taking a biblical truth that didn't fit what he thinks God should be like. Why would he pour his wrath out like that? So he decides that all Christendom must have got it wrong somehow, you know, maybe all those years. There, there must be another way of looking at it, you know. What happens is we have a tendency to reconfigure God to fit our own standards. And when we put God on trial in our heads and we decide that he is guilty of not meeting our expectations, we essentially proceed to make an idol in our heads, an adaptation of God that fits our own code of decency, as it were. We still call it God, and we believe some things rightly, but we blend our worship of the true God with a form of idolatry. And not every idol looks like a little statue on the mantle. Plenty of churchgoers have an idol in their mind one of their own creation of what God must be like and not the God who is. We are not much different from the Sanhedrin of Jesus' day. We're the same stubborn, stiff-necked people that God called out of obscurity to be his people. And I'm not at all sure that had I been in the same story, I would have been one of the good guys. I would be much more at home on the Sanhedrin or hiding with Peter than at the side of Christ. And that's the remarkable part of the scene. There is no one at Christ's side. There are no good guys left in the story. The disciples have run away. The Jewish leaders are prosecuting Jesus. And the Romans are not going to step in to save an innocent man. The only hero in this tale is Jesus Christ himself. And the father knew that it would be this way. He knew his son would be put through this shame and disgrace. And he sent him here in the full knowledge that this was coming. I want you to see the Father's love in this scene, a love for you that was willing to see his Son endure the shame to save you from your sin. This is the beginnings of the cup that Jesus wished would pass him by, and the Father says no for you and for me. He showed no mercy on his Son so that he could have mercy on you and me a bunch of idolatrous liars and cheats who aren't even worth the trouble. And the only thing Jesus is guilty of here is being who he says he is. His crime is being the king. His crime is being in charge. And in our natural state, we hate that. It's unacceptable. And we will dethrone him any way we can. And it was true then, and it's true now. Paul says in Romans, God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Can you imagine sending your son to face justice in North Korea or Iran to save your enemies there? No one in their right mind would do that, yet that is the Father's love for us. I don't think we would have recognized or received the Christ any better than the Jews did. Everybody expects the Messiah to come in triumph. They expect a victorious Christ. In other words, everybody's always looking for the second coming. And that was true even in Jesus' day. Jesus and the New Testament writers repeatedly warn us to be on the lookout for false messiahs, and that's because the conquering king messiah is a very desirable position. It's what everyone wants to sign up for. From Thutis in the book of Acts to David Koresh in Waco, Texas in the 90s, history is full of pretenders to Jesus' kingship. Because everyone likes the taste of power and victory. No one's waiting in line to be the suffering Messiah. But here's the thing. 
The only way to qualify for a glorious and victorious second coming is a humble and humiliating first coming. And only Jesus can make that claim. No one could have possibly envisioned a more humiliating reception than Jesus receives at the hands of his own people. No one that is except the Father, but he sent him anyway. Now, as we continue studying Jesus' road to the cross these next couple of weeks, don't lose the power of the stories. The point is not to feel sorry or angry about what happened. Hear the stories and wince at the shame and the humiliation, but through it all, I want you to see the Father's love for you running through these events. Don't despair, but take it all in and thank God for his mercy and the gift of his Son who he did not spare but gladly gave up for us all. Let's pray. Lord God, you are merciful. What is man that you're mindful of him and the Son of Man that you care for him and yet you care for us? doesn't make sense to us, Lord. We can't wrap our minds around such love. But we thank you for modeling it. We thank you for your son. We thank you for sending him. We pray these things in Jesus' name.